Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And today, I just want to introduce Paul Check. Now, man probably needs no introduction for those of you that have heard of him before, but Paul is just an absolute innovator and I think pioneer in health, wellness, whatever you want to call it. Uh, from his book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, to just all of the amazing programs uh, that he puts out on a really very regular basis. Uh, I encourage you, please check out his work. Check out the Czech Institute. Uh, they've given me so much in my health education, my personal education. I mean, just as an overall uh, human being. And this this conversation gets deep. I mean, we start off talking about a little bit of the education of the Czech Institute, but then we go into a lot of other things. Just it's It's always amazing to be able to get to talk to Paul, to share with Paul. Uh, and I mean, really, this was just almost a personal therapy for me. Uh, and I cannot thank Paul enough for the conversation. And I hope you guys use this. Uh, I mean, I plan on using this basically as a meditation. There's so much for me to dive into in this show. I, I hope you guys get as much out of it. And please enjoy this conversation. Alrighty guys, and welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Paul Check. Now, Paul and I were already diving into a conversation, as you can imagine, uh, before we got on here. And I said, hold on a second, let's let's get recording here. So, Paul, we were just reflecting a little bit on some of your teachings. And uh, I mean, I was taking like, okay, I've taken all the HLC classes with you. Uh, I've taken some with Angie now too. And if you could share, like, how do you set up that class specifically for uh, each each class because it still is going to vary depending on who is in that class. Well, you know, there's the manual and there's the overarching structure of the learning objectives for each particular advanced training program from exercise coach to level four and HLC one, two, three. And uh, sometimes I teach PPS success mastery workshops. A couple years ago, I brought out check four quadrant coaching. I've taught two of those, but that's actually my biggest program ever. Uh, we're, we're still working on getting the mass of that thing online. It took me seven days straight to film that. It's over 800 slides in the presentation. It's by far the deepest program I've ever built. But um, what I do, as I was alluding to earlier when we were off air, you know, the thing is, is that, yes, there's learning objectives to be met. But what I do because I only get so much exposure to the students that come through my programs. And a couple of things happen. You know, I'm a clairvoyant and I'm clairsentient. And I'm highly intuitive. You know, I've spent a lot of my life meditating, doing Tai Chi, Qigong and related practice, shamanic practices. So you know, the, the windows are pretty open for me. And what I feel, and, and I really sort of developed this approach from working with my higher level students. And I would see things in them in the lower level classes, but I wouldn't say things to them because I didn't want to disrupt the class. But what I would find inevitably 
is I knew somebody was in big relationship trouble, for, for example, with their spouse. And sure enough, I'd get an email six months later that they've gone through a divorce. And now they've got a broken family with kids. And I know what all that's about because I've been through it. Or, you know, I would see things that I was worried about bringing up because, A, it could be very disruptive to the class. And in the past, when I've done that, people have very strong emotional catharsis. And it can hold the class up for three hours easily. But after I saw the pattern emerging that so many of the things that I was seeing were ultimately producing big challenges in their lives that if I would have preempted them and said, you know, here's a way to shift your approach or here's some resources you can study that will help you deal with the challenge you're going through, I could have saved them from a lot of challenges. And because my goal as a teacher is to produced authentic masters, not just the masses. Otherwise, I'd just be another idea, you know, just peddling superficial, fluffy stuff to everybody to make money. Um, corporate prostitution, really. Um, I basically felt that it's better for me to help people with what's real, knowing that all the students in the class are, most of them have these same kinds of issues or will at some time. And by bringing key things up that need to be addressed because they're very live and very real and they can see right in class what happens when I approach certain things or bring certain subjects up. For example, the number one triggering issue, as I'm sure you know from being in my class, is anything to do with God. <laughs> I, yes, this is for sure true. <laughs> so people, you know, I've had complaints from students. Why does Paul talk about God so much? But what they don't realize is having been in this line of work for 35 years and being very skilled at assessing people physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, I know that the very foundation First of all, behaviors are always backed by beliefs. And most of those beliefs are programmed beliefs that are active in the unconscious. And many people state, for example, oh, I, I don't have Christian beliefs anymore or whatever. Yet they don't realize the very way they're behaving and behaving in relationships and the story they're telling themselves doesn't match the story they're telling other people, which is always a formula for crisis. So I tap into the group and I let my soul guide me to what do I need to say specifically to either bring up issues that are hot and live or to trigger their unconscious mind to purposely get them to react so that they will then interact with me. And sometimes that leads to, you know, heated discussions about what the Bible says, which is a very dangerous game to play with me because I usually have a lot more knowledge about the Bible than most Christians do. And my goal is to teach them how to think effectively, how to process a case effectively, how to look at what the body is telling them because the body never lies. You know, you, it doesn't matter. You know, I've had many vegetarians hire me because they're sick, broken or diseased, and they will sit there and tell me when I tell them they need to eat flesh foods, they will go on for hours blabbing about how fantastic vegetarianism is and how healthy it is 
and then I just show them their health appraisal questionnaire and say, if that's true, then why are all your systems out of balance? Why do you look like a sick old person on your assessment? And why are you paying me $750 an hour because you're feeling so shitty? And only then to, to, to put two and two together and realize they're defending an ideology. They're defending an ism. Most always those isms are an attempt to find a family that is safe to be in that has ideas that give you something beyond yourself to participate in, whether it be saving the whales or not eating meat or saving the cows and the sheep or uh, fighting for whatever, women's rights, or not that any of those things aren't good things to do, but when you're doing those things at the expense of your own health and vitality, now you're practicing animal cruelty on the only animal that can change the world for the better. You know, bears don't start forest fires. Cows don't start wars. Humans do. So if any philosophy that a person's living is debilitating their ability to contribute to a democracy, well, then they're practicing some form of fascism or communism on themselves, but complaining about how shitty the world is and not realizing they're too debilitated to take part in making the world a better place. You know, I'm here to help people become proactive co-contributors and co-creators in the world, not just whining complainers that blame everybody else, including mommy and daddy, for their problems. So when I teach classes, they can go in any direction, and I try to use the tools in the class to help normalize. So if it's an infant development discussion, and I identify these issues, I show this is why your body doesn't move. For example, most people's thoracic spine is terribly locked up right in the zone of the heart chakra. So as soon as I see that, I just look inside them and see what's going on. And it could be a death in the family that they haven't resolved, the death of a pet that they loved, or grief about a sibling that died, or any number of issues, right? So, you know, look how common low back pain is. Well, the key psychological correlate to low back pain is safety and security, which in our world isn't based on whether you can hunt and gather. It's based on how much money you have. And when you look at the research, 98% of Americans are two paychecks from bankruptcy. So researchers on low back pain don't even consider these things. Yet, Nor how many, could they even put it into their research? Like well, how would they... they but it, most of, but most of them, could. right? But most of them would be just so short-sighted to say, "Oh well, they're just not going to look at that. They're not going to ever consider that as far as most of their research, because if it's not mechanical, if it's not something they can just show right then and there, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of them would just be so turned off to it." Well, here's a key point you'll see if you look: no researcher, no doctor, no therapist wants to look into anything in other people that they're unwilling to look at in themselves. And therein lies a big problem in the entire health and allied healthcare community. You know, many of the HLC practitioners that I've run into over the years that got out of the business and I ran into them and said, how's your HLC practice going? Oh, I got out of the business. Why? People drove me nuts. Why? They wouldn't do anything I told them to do. And I looked right at them and said, 
how did you do with getting gluten out of your diet and getting sugar out of your diet and getting to bed on time and the things you were telling them to do? And then they go silent and their head drops down like a child who's just been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. So I see the real, I tell them, the world mirrors you back to you. You will always attract yourself to yourself as a client. And I also tell my students, bugs fly to the light. So paradoxically, the more balanced and healthy you are, the more of everything you get because you are, they recognize you consciously or unconsciously as a source of wisdom. The difference is if you're in harmony yourself, the very presence of your being in their life has a harmonizing force on them. But if people are attracted to you because of your marketing, but you're not authentic with what you teach, every time you're teaching someone to do something you're not doing, you send out a wave of incoherence, dissonance. And so paradoxically, you're scrambling the person that's paying you for help. And then people can't figure out why, with all the money they spend on marketing, that their business isn't thriving. And that's why. One of the things you talked about here, and I've heard you talk uh, on several podcasts, but I'm very interested in is uh, the the clairaudience, the the clairvoyance, the, the clairsentience. I've, I'm curious, like, where did you learn that? Like, how did you start to cultivate that? Because I think that's something that, I, I th- as a as a coach, is a fantastic thing to have to be able to really help out uh, your clients, your patients, whomever it is. Uh, so where did you kind of get started with that and how have you furthered that practice for yourself? Well, we all have it. We just repress it. Each of us has a natural ability. Some of us have inner vision. That's our natural ability. Anybody that dreams while they're awake is clairvoyant. That's the very process of it. The difference is that's undirected, spontaneous clairvoyance. So once you learn to use the power of dreaming awake and direct it with intention, so for example, if I'm sitting with a client, I just relax and ask my soul to connect me to their soul. And then I ask their soul to show me anything that it wants me to discuss with them to help them at this time in their life. So have you ever had the experience of knowing something but not knowing how and sure enough it turned out to be true? Well, I've actually been over about the last six to nine months really trying to cultivate that in myself and being much more open to it as best I can because like you said, I I think a lot of that was repressed at some point, right? So I'm trying to be much more open to that and now I'm seeing that pop up further and further. Well, that's the way you do it. You invite it. But most everybody's had the experience of having the urge to call somebody and then they call them and the person says, oh, my God, I was just thinking about you. Well, that's immediate knowing. You're picking up on that other person's thoughts, feelings, and emotions because we're all entangled together. The more time you spend in relationship to anybody, the more entangled you are. Um, or the more coherent you are with that person in, 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 in physics or quantum physics or the science of mind, it's called, um, it's called uh, correlation. So when they have people meditate together, they become highly correlated. Or in quantum physics, they become entangled. And 
so I could go into a long discussion of that, but the real issue is, is that every one of us has either the ability for inner knowing, inner seeing, inner listening, telepathy, and all of us have the ability for precognition, to know things before the ego mind knows them. And people like Dean Radin have done extensive research showing that when they flash images on a screen at random that's computer generated so nobody knows what image is coming up and they're monitoring their physiological biomarkers such as brain waves, breathing rate, galvanic skin response, heart rate, etc., that consistently the physiology of the body reacts to whether the image is stressful or pleasant one half of a second before it appears on the screen. And the statistical probability of that is massively high, which means that we're shutting out the things that we're afraid to engage. So the other problem is, is that we've got a scientific materialist culture where mainstream science denies all these abilities and calls people quack jobs and weirdos. But the problem is, is if you don't actually look into the research and see what's really out there, then you fall into the trap of being conditioned by those that are the least skilled human beings on the planet, but fit the consensus norm. A shaman is a non-consensus person. They live outside of the tribe so they don't get caught in the programming and the beliefs and so that people don't um, assume them. Just like in the military, enlisted men don't get to go to the officer's mess. They don't get to have personal relationships with officers because they don't want enlisted men to assume an officer or to think that they can talk to them in certain ways they have to keep the rank structure intact or in a battlefield people don't follow orders and they just start telling officers what to do and the next thing you know you have mayhem. So the key thing is, is that when I was a kid I lived in a very, very stressful environment and the stress was so much you could say I started cracking up. And what happened was is my parents used to force us to go to bed at 7 o'clock at night. And in the summertime on Vancouver Island, it can be light till 11 o'clock at night. And I had a lot of energy. It was, you know, it was a, it was a very fit, strong uh, child that had a lot of creative energy. And so being in my bedroom and just sitting there used to drive me nutty. And then with all the violence in the family, there was a lot of pain trapped in me. And because my father died when I was eight I, I, and my stepfather was highly abusive, I, I felt like I was, I felt like I'd been taken prisoner and I hated every minute of it. So what happened was, is I was laying in my bedroom, just on my bed, and I fell into this place of no mind. And all of a sudden, I was up on the ceiling looking down at my body in bed. And at first, I thought I was just dreaming. But then all of a sudden, I realized that I was actually looking back down at my body laying there. In other words, my consciousness was in the body above me, not in the body in the bed. 
And when I realized what was happening, I got scared and all of a sudden my light body came back into my physical body with such intensity, I literally jumped like somebody had electrocuted me. And I was shaking, I was scared, I didn't know what was happening. But as I laid there, I thought, somehow I just got out of my body and I wonder how far I can go because if I can get out of this house, I'm not trapped anymore. So then I just relaxed and breathed and held the intention to come out of my body again and sure enough I was able to do it. And it was so exciting and so mind-blowing for me, I started practicing. So every night when I had to go to bed, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go practice. Within two or three days, I was able to actually, I found that I could go right out of the house, just like the house was non-existent. I could go right through the walls. And so I started cruising all over the farm. You know, we had 140-something acre uh, farm, so there was lots of places to go. And I had a beautiful big tree fort out in one of our fields behind the house. And so, you know, as a 12 year old, I thought, well, let me go hang out in my tree fort. So sure enough, I could go hang out in the tree fort. And then I started questioning myself, am I just making this up? Or am I dreaming or something unusual? And I knew inherently I shouldn't tell anybody because they'd probably send me to a psychiatrist. So what I started doing was going out into the barnyard and all over the farm and looking for things like tools that I could then get up in the morning and go check to see if they were there. And every single time I was dead on, I was able to find chainsaws and axes and gas cans and tell where, you know, sometimes my father would move animals from one pasture to another. And he might do that in the evening at night when, when I wasn't standing there watching him. And I would go say, okay, the sheep are in that pasture, I'd go check. And I realized somehow I'm able to leave my body and I'm able to actually not only walk around, but I can move with my mind. In other words, if I wanted to go from my bedroom to the very edge of our property, three quarters of a mile away or something like that, I could get there as quick as I could think it. All I had to do was focus my intention on being there and I would appear there. Later, I found out that was called remote viewing and that it was taught by the CIA <laughs> at very high levels of the military. And that cracked me up. And then I'll skip to the punchline on that one in a minute. But, you know, my mother joined the Self-Realization Fellowship when I was, I think, 12. And that's the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. So we left the Christian faith, which was also a big relief for me because I found that just to be confusing and torturous and scary. And it didn't make any sense to me. But the monks were so loving and they, and unlike the Sunday school, they would answer all my questions. Any question that anyone gave them, they would give decent answers to or just say they didn't know. But rarely did they say they didn't know because these guys were very deep, deep human beings. And they taught us meditation techniques. When I was 15, I spent a whole uh, summer, I went to summer camp with the monks and did meditation training every day and, and you know, a variety of spiritual practice. So that, joined my, when my mother joined the Self-Realization uh, Self Fellowship, 
I started meditating quite regularly and I found that it was helpful for me and my mother was quite surprised because she would ask me, so what did you experience in your, in your meditation? So what I would tell her, I remember as a kid, she was like shocked. She was like, you're getting deeper in your meditations than I am. And she'd been meditating for years. Now, I didn't know how it was happening, it just was. So jump forward to about 2001 or two, Lynn McTaggart, the lady that wrote the book, The Field, had a conference. She, has a, she had a series of conferences. I don't think they're going anymore, but that year, Edgar Mitchell was the keynote presenter, and uh, he's the founder of the Institute for Noetic Sciences, which is research uh, for studying consciousness. And they had the CIA's director of remote viewing offering a one-day remote viewing course and 750 people showed up to that course. It was in a huge auditorium in downtown London. And I was sitting there with two of my instructors. Now, I'd never talked to anybody about these abilities I'd developed as a kid. But what they did was they would put envelopes up on a kind of a bulletin board on stage and then would give you the basic technique and then say, now your job is to draw a picture of what's in that picture in the envelope. And so as we were doing these drills, I would show the pictures I had drawn with my two instructors that were with me. I'd see theirs, and then we would wait to see what the picture was, and they were shocked that my hand drawings were so close. Sometimes they were exactly what was in the envelope. <laughs> but at the end, they had a contest, and the instructor said, okay, now we're going to have a contest, and the winner gets a prize. Tell me what happened to me. I think it was July such and such at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And so I used my, – my technique was different, though. Um, I, I won't go into that, but I had a technique that I developed in my bedroom, right? And I found it actually worked better for me. And so I began having visions of him inside of a large multi-story glass building that looked typically like a hospital. And I just moved through the timeline and I was looking through the window from outside the building, traveling in you know, what today would be called the astral body, sometimes called the spirit body. And I saw that he was hooked up to all sorts of monitoring devices and there was doctors and nurses buzzing around him like, like they were like some kind of an emergency was going on. And so I just left it at that. So then he said, okay, time to see what happened and I, I, I inherently knew I was going to win the contest so I quickly raised my arm and he said you the soldier looking guy in the back and uh, so I described it and as I was describing it the look on his face was shock because I described exactly what was going on then I had to listen to people saying oh you were in a cave with dragons and all sorts of crazy hippie smoke and pot shit you know so at the end of the contest he announces you, the soldier-looking guy in the back, you're the winner. He said, at 2 o'clock on July such and such, I was having a massive heart attack and I was being rushed into surgery. And since then, I've been able to help, uh, you know, find people that were lost either in the mountains or in fires and things like that. Uh, the, 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 to further answer your question, though, In 2001, I think, I started studying with Master Fong Ha, who was a Tai Chi and a Qigong master. 
because I, I felt it was very, very important for people to learn how to use breathing and movement to balance their biological oscillators, stabilize their internal physiology, enhance left-right brain integration, and produce anabolic activity in the body to counterbalance all the catabolic activity from exercise and faulty diet and lifestyle. And most forms of Tai Chi and Qigong are too heady. You know, I've seen people go to Tai Chi for two years and I can still tell when they're in my classes, they're way up in their head thinking about is their hand angle right, is their posture right. And I saw that that was very detrimental because they were still trapped in their head. So I went to Fong Ha and, and explained to him what I was working on developing. And he took me through a series of three different gongs, which is a 100-day practice, of very simple but very powerful Tai Chi techniques. And then I, uh, through that experience, I, my Claire voyance just started really getting more and more powerful and my clairaudience and my clairsentience all the voyances just started like turning way way on way stronger and I was you know my wife can even tell you she'll give me a birthday present or something I can just hold the package up to my third eye and tell her right what's in it um, so the point is there's a couple of factors. One, in order to use those abilities, you have to tap into the unconscious mind, and you can't do that unless you let go of the ego's control. Most people are too afraid to let go of control. They actually have the illusion they can control things in their life. Of course, we have some control. We have to you know, decide when to set our alarm clock to get out of bed and whatever, but if you think you can control your wife or your girlfriend or how much money you're going to make in the stock market or things that are actually can't be controlled because too many people are involved, so we're actually affecting each other, then you're just living a, a delusion, right? But you, if you get your body healthy enough, if the body's in a state of fight or flight because it's got a disease process or chronic inflammation or it's under-rested, anything that keeps elevating cortisol levels keeps you in your left brain because the body literally feels it's under threat. Voyances won't turn on effectively. Now, someone who's got a lot of skill and a lot of practice and has developed the, the pathways and developed their subtle energy bodies through practice can use those things under stressful circumstances, but it takes a high level of practice and development because you have to be able to literally shift yourself from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic state by consciously doing it. But you'll never do that without a lot, like a monk can do that. A, a very elite level martial artist who's been trained by a skilled master with spiritual um, orientation can do that. For example, have you seen the movie Bloodsport? It's John been a bit, but yes. Yeah, so you remember when the Chinese guy threw the sand in his eyes and he right. couldn't see or the powder? Yeah. And he had to fight blind. That's exactly what a real spiritual master that's a martial arts master can teach you because that's using clairvoyance. That's how he did that. Of course, it's a movie, but it's actually depicting something that's very, very real. So here he is in a life or death situation, but he can shift himself into a parasympathetic state and use his whole brain. 
So the the other real issue, and this is pr very real, and you know, I think you probably know I'm a medicine man, spirit guide, and I've done hundreds of medicine ceremonies with plant medicines and gone very very deep. I've tested both pathways. I've gone as I've gone into zero, absolute, not you know, completely gone into just pure awareness, both through Tai Chi and meditation. I've had many, um, you know, samadhis or unity experiences with the whole universe through meditation. And in Tai Chi, I've gone deep into no mind to the point where I didn't even know I was alive or that I was myself. I was in a place where there was no space and no time, just pure awareness. So I've compared plant medicine approaches with natural approaches to, to kind of correlate them. But what you find as you go into these states is you pass first through your own personal unconscious, which holds your shadow. This is why when people use plant medicines, they often have what they call a bad trip, things like LSD, DMT, whatever, mushrooms, because they don't realize they're actually in the storehouse of all the stuff they've repressed or denied about themselves or others. Once you go through the personal unconscious, you merge into the collective unconscious, which is the life experience of all, not only all human beings, but all sentient beings from insects and worms to whales and dolphins to every living creature on the planet is held in the collective unconscious of this planet. And that includes the good and the bad. So if, if the ego cannot handle seeing the truth of life or the truth of we can call it God, then the experience can be absolutely shattering to that person's ego and it can crack somebody up because they can't take seeing something that is almost unreconcilable, which is why a lot of atheists don't believe in God. They say, well, if God is God and God is love, then why all the violence and destruction in the world? But that's based on a complete misunderstanding of what God is and it's also because the Abrahamic religions keep playing a very dangerous game, which is pitting God against the devil, which is ridiculous. Because if God is God, then everything, including the devil, is emergent of God and therefore has a function. And so if you're not ready to actually see reality and you can't consciously handle it, you will block out anything that you can't handle or your ego thinks it can't control. So it, it takes a big set of nuts or a big set of ovaries to actually go that deep into the unconscious or the, or the collective unconscious because you come face to face with all the things about yourself that you don't like or that you deny. For example, if, if you're really, if your true tendency is, to, is towards same-sex relationships, but it's socially very unacceptable, you can bury that so deep in your unconscious that you don't even know that you're doing it and you are married to somebody but can't figure out why you have such a shitty sex life. Well, because in this case, women don't turn you on at all, right? But once you get on the right medicine or start meditating deeply enough, you will meet the gay person inside of yourself. And if you can't handle that, it can lead to a lot more repression and a lot more denial and a lot more fear and then you start thinking, I wonder if anybody else recognizes this in me. So you can get very anxious and paranoid. So do you see that what I'm saying is most people don't have access to these skills because there's too much responsibility that goes with them 
And if your program beliefs go against the truth of what's happening in the world and what's happening in life and what God really is, then you meet this kind of, you get into this irreconcilable wrestling match with your own mind versus what you're being shown through your voyances. And that can lead people into schizophrenia and nutcase, you know, being locked up because they can't reconcile it anymore. And they can't differentiate a hallucination from a vision. A hallucination is the manufacture of something that isn't real. But, it, but a vision is an image. Jung says the psyche is imaginal, not imaginary. Which means in layman's terms that our psyche, our mind processes images before it processes languages. Even a newborn child is processing images even though it does not have the symbolic language to express its images. Right? If, 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 a, if a child that's only five days old sees the father slapping the mother around, those images are very real and it reacts with a severe stress reaction, but it cannot say in language what's happening. So what Jung is saying is that the psyche is imaginal, meaning it's projecting images that are real. And our whole sense of who we are, what we are, and what's happening all around us is imaginal. And then there's a deeper level to that. If God is unconditional love, as I've taught you in class, the only mathematical correlate to unconditional love is zero. So if God is a zero, that means everything we see that we think of as reality is actually a virtual reality. If your mother is a zero, then you can only be an imaginary one. That's what it means to be imaginal. That was, and, I, I've heard you talk about that, Paul, but thank you, because this actually is explaining that and making that so much more clear to it as well. Look, talk to any remote viewer. Go to Gaia TV. Go to uh, George Norrie's show, Beyond Belief, or to Regina Meredith's show, Open Minds, or many of the others interviewing remote viewers and people with these abilities, and they can tell you what's on the moon. I can, too. It's not that hard to do. Um I've done, I've got volumes of notebooks of my recorded uh, meditations and astral travels where I've met beings in other dimensions. The universe is absolutely chock-a-block with life and life forms that are different than ours, but our psyche blocks them out because we can't deal with that much information and most people would be scared to death. I mean, all this talk about aliens, if they knew the truth, you're, <laughs> you're, you're walking through them all the time. You're surrounded by them, you know, um, but the, the, the key point that I'm making is, look, right now in your room that you're standing in, if you turn on a radio, you'll find all sorts of radio stations there, but you don't see or feel those radio waves, do you? Well, what if you realize that your entire body was a bundle of frequencies, no different than radio waves, just at a different frequency range? 
And what if you had the ability to tune into other dimensions and found that there was beings in those dimensions that are just vibrating at such a high resonance, they're out of the octave range of your sensory apparatus. Your instrument doesn't pick up on them until you learn to use your subtle energy bodies, which are higher vibrational entities. And this isn't even airy-fairy stuff. If you look at the book Science and Human Transformation by William A. Tiller, one of the most famous scientists in the world from Stanford University, he shows you that at each chakra level, the speed of light multiplies. In fact, the whole concept of light being fixed at 186,000 uh, miles per second or whatever it is, isn't true. And many scientists such as Nassim Harriman and others have proven that Rupert Sheldrake gave a TED talk talking about these things and they banned the talk because the establishment doesn't want you to know that. But Tiller shows the mathematics. Each chakra, the speeds of light goes up significantly by multiple factors. So what I'm telling you is that there is hard science and look at Cynthia, Cynthia Dale's Encyclopedia of Subtle Energy Anatomy and all the science there. And then look at the book Stalking the Wild Pendulum. Itzhak Bentov shows right in his book that the human being's nervous system is capable of receiving frequency ranges all from the atom and subatomic particles all the way to God. We've got a very wide range of receptivity if we learn how to use it. So... What I'm telling you is, is that when you learn and Steiner taught, you've got to do spiritual practices to develop your subtle energy organs. He said for each organ and gland in our body, there's a subtle energy correlate. When you die, those are the things you live with. Your physical body dies, but now you're in your astral and mental body. And if you don't develop those organs, then you are not conscious when you die. You just fall asleep and wake up in another body, but those who want to participate in their afterlife consciously do the spiritual practices that grow the subtle energy correlates to each of our organs. So subtle energy eyes, subtle energy ears, etc. And then as you do these spiritual practices, these other systems come online and this is where you see masters doing all sorts of weird things and you know I won't go into all that because it's too long but I can tell you from from astral travel there there's myriads of beings and every place I've gone to from Venus to the Sun I've met wild and interesting beings that are highly intelligent and friendly on the Sun for example but they don't have bodies like ours you know, our scientists keep looking for life like ours all over the universe. And I'm like, I look at that and I'm going, that is just so damn ridiculous. If you want to look for life like ours, you have to find another planet in the universe. And there's research shows that there's billions of planets like that based on our structure of our solar system. But we don't have the technology to get there yet. But for example, when I go to the sun and meet the beings there, they don't, they don't even feel the heat. The heat isn't affecting them because they're made of light. They're made of different vibrational realities so that their composition is such that, you know, the, the heat of the sun is like the air to us, so to speak. We just walk around in the air and don't think about it like a fish in water. 
the water, you know, try to sell a fish a cup of water. It won't even know what you're talking about. You know, I know these are way out there things, but really these aren't that way out there. The only reason they're way out there is because we have such a dumbed down culture, largely due to organized religion and scientific materialism and people just not wanting to know the truth of what's really going on. But, I mean, there's countless books out there by highly involved people that have been telling us the truth for as long as people have been writing stuff down. And that's what a shaman is, someone who can navigate multiple dimensions. Now, Paul, that actually brings right into one of the questions that I had for you, because I've been studying shamanism now, um, and... Where, where, where I think you've touched on, I think in one other interview that I heard you talk about, but I'm curious to just hear more of your thoughts on them too, is healing as a shaman. You can, yes. and, and I'm sure like just being like either you, Angie, like being very skilled shamans, right? You could go and easily heal somebody of their wounds, their diseases, anything like that. But Not where necessarily. Does, okay. Well, yes. uh, if I could just like, go ahead. How yeah. does that kind of so? Also, I mean, I would want you to touch on that maybe because my perception might be off on that. But then also, where does it come into play? Like, not just healing somebody to heal them, but showing them what all needs to be done in that healing process as well, rather than just kind of having it done for them. But really, that's the whole point. Yeah, that's the key. So when I said not necessarily. Look, this is a lot deeper than people realize. And I've talked to many shaman all over the world on, on various occasions. And I've talked to people that were tra in training with shamans. And I was giving a Czech Four Quadrant Coaching Mastery workshop in London with like 75 or more people in it. And one of the guys in the class had just come out of the jungle after spending four months in the jungle in training with a shaman. And the point I was making to the class is, look, look how many people keep going to shaman, energy healers, Reiki practitioners, dot, dot, dot. And they keep having the same problems over and over again. And they just keep running back to the shaman going, fix me, fix me. And he raised his hand and he said, I just want to tell you, I just spent four months in the jungle and you're right. The same people come back with the same problems over and over, and the shaman just keeps doing the same thing or doing different things, but the problem's never going away because they're not addressing the actual problem. They're addressing the symptoms of the problem. You see, there's a couple of issues here. One, I don't ever personally do healing work on somebody to try to get rid of something unless their soul gives me the clearance. And then that means they're ready to heal. And it means I have a soul contract with them to help that person. But if I do a healing on somebody, but don't explain to them what it is that got them in trouble in the first place and what they need to do to progressively heal themselves, well, then I'm nothing but a drug to that person. Now I'm just practicing allopathic medicine with fancy shamanic approaches, which is to completely against my philosophy. If you don't learn to take care of yourself, then you're just a victim of your own silliness. And then you end up just 
just putting all your money in someone else's pocket. Um, two, pain is the chief tool for bringing us into higher states of consciousness. If we didn't have pain, we would keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again at every level of our lives. If there's, and most people's pain is based on the choices they're making. Choosing to stay up late at night, choosing to eat garbage food. As I often say, you don't get fat overnight. You don't get diabetes overnight. You gotta work for 10 years to give cancer to yourself with the rare exception of some kind of a poisoning or something like that. So there are healings that I've done and many have witnessed them. And I used to do these in HLC training with Dr. Oliver and it was, you know, profound things would happen. It would even shock me. But I always check with that person's soul and I always look to see, you know, what it is that's going on and if it's something that that person cannot take care of themselves because they don't have the ability, then I use my shamanic abilities and I don't do it myself. I always call in helpers. And it's not, you know, I'm just sort of a vessel for higher consciousness. But almost always these issues are issues of choices. The point I'm making is taking a person's pain away is not a wise thing to do usually. I can give you an example. Gift for you. Appreciate it. Um, I was trying to remember what example I was going to give you. Um, What I'm saying, though, is it'll come back to me. Taking people's pain away is, is uh, not a good idea. But uh, the example I was going to give you is I spent three years training in functional medicine with one of the pioneers. In fact, he was the guy that invented salivary testing. His name's Bill Timmons. He was the founder of Biohealth Diagnostics, which is a huge functional medicine testing company that has its own tests that you can, you know, like they're a lab. And... Uh, I practiced functional medicine solid for three years and ran extensive testing on my clients. And so typically you find people have uh, adrenal burnout, phase two or three, could be phase one, which is high levels of cortisol, but most of the people are in phase two or phase three, which means they're producing not enough cortisol at certain periods in a 24-hour cycle, which then disrupts the cortisol DHEA ratio, which has a, a big problem effect on the body because the body cannot... Um, switch to an anabolic cycle you can't heal so they just burn out and that produces chronic fatigue syndrome and all sorts of stuff fibromyalgia all these things are related to these imbalances but what I found over and over and over again is the people would go home they would take their pregnenolone their licorice root their whatever supplements but then they would feel better and start staying up late at night eating more junk food and drinking more coffee and living like idiots and I kept telling them you can't do that just because you feel better doesn't give you a license to live like a moron I mean I'm being more verbal than I might with them but I am saying the same things basically and I say it to them in slightly politer words but what I found out was 
it made it impossible to coach people because they didn't have a reason to manage themselves anymore. You use drugs to take people's pain away or supplements and you knock the feedback loop out. Pain and discomfort is the body's way of telling you what the result of the choices you're making is. So to do shamanic healings on people like that is to disable them. Because now I just become the next aspirin. It's just an expensive aspirin. And the next thing you know, I got people coming out of the woodwork to me wanting me to do magic on them, which I refuse to do. So I stopped using functional medicine and I just refer those people that need, like if I think someone has heavy metal poisoning or uh, I need to do tests on them to figure out what exact parasite they have or, um, you know, I want to see anything from genetic markers or whatever, I refer them to Dr. Cliff Oliver because he's a master at functional medicine testing. He's on top of all the current best supplements to help balance certain things. But the reality of it is, is you know, I've coached thousands of people to health using the basic techniques that I use and other things that I don't teach because they're too advanced. But I would say I only have to do functional medicine testing with probably uh, two out of 10 clients. But remember, the people seeking me out come pretty in bad shape, right? I've got letters from all over the world from people, mothers and families who have just applied how to eat, move and be healthy and gotten themselves off medical drugs and had all sorts of problems from health problems, from skin problems like cirrhosis and, uh, you know, you name it that doctors told them they would have for the rest of their life. It clears up as soon as they start following the basic principles that I teach in how to eat, move and be healthy, with, which is an operator's manual for a physical body. So... You know, the point that I'm making is I'm quite reserved with who I do healing work on because my goal is to teach them how to heal themselves. And if a person is not willing to take enough responsibility for themselves to manage themselves and heal themselves, then I'm not doing them any favors and neither is any other shaman doing that. Because by the time they get home, they're right back into the same shit that got them in trouble. And you see the same stuff with psychedelic use. People go off to the jungle or to some guy's backyard and they have this epiphany that, oh, you know, I don't love my wife enough or my kids enough or whatever. Well, two weeks later, they're the same village idiot they ever were because they don't actually have the discipline to change their behavior and to look honestly at the beliefs that are driving those behaviors. And that's what therapy is for. And, and you know, that's what I teach specially level four practitioners to do and HLC practitioners are being given the basic steps. And that's why I tell all the students, you must master this in your own life or you will limit your own ability to grow and therefore your ability to help others because you cannot take another person beyond where you've taken yourself. It's impossible to do. All you can do is get lost with them. The analogy I give is if you hire a mountaineering guide to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, but that mountaineering guide's never gone more than halfway up the mountain, well, the minute you cross the halfway mark, now you're not, you don't have a mountaineering guide. You just got someone you're lost with. If he knows how to use a compass better than you, then good. But in reality, he's not gone down that trail before. So he doesn't know where the bears, the wolves, and the booby traps are. Only someone who's made it to the top of that mountain successfully 
and done it enough times to have a level of mastery is a real mountaineering guide. And when we work with clients, we're that metaphorical mountaineering guide. And if we can't get our own body healthy, then we can't really do anything but tell them what to do. Well, how is that working? We've got more MDs, PhDs, master's degrees, physiotherapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, personal trainers, massage therapists, energy healers per capita than ever in the history of man. And we are the sickest people we've ever been and the most destructive to the planet. So if all that stuff worked, we'd be in the golden age right now and nature would be blossoming, right? But what the, what, what, it, what the real issue is, is people are still only on average developed to about the level of a child. Some studies in psychology say that 90% of people on this planet have not evolved themselves psychologically past what they were at 12 years of age. So we just have a bunch of children running around in adult bodies, driving fancy cars and, you know, running corporations. And you see that in our politicians. Look who runs our country. A, a teenager. At best. <laughs> at best. Who's got nuclear weapons at his fingertips. <laughs> who could get us all killed. But there's the shadow of the collective being mirrored back to us. Right. So the point is, as I often tell people, as much as I don't like Donald Trump, he reminds me of all the things I don't like about myself. And that's a great reminder not to behave that way. So until a person's ready to become an adult and take responsibility for the gift of life and the gift of a human body, which is a miracle in itself, they're going to run around from doctor to doctor, to therapist to therapist, to pill to pill, to injection to injection, to surgery to surgery, to faith healer, to energy healer, to shaman. And it's only the true healers that actually use that opportunity to say, this is what you need to look at in your life. And this is where your, you know, your management has to be, you have to become conscious of what you're creating by your choices. And as Arnold Patton says in his Universal Principles, if you don't like what's happening in your life, Look carefully at what you're choosing unconsciously. And most of what we do is unconscious. In other words, people aren't actually thinking about the ramifications of their choices or their beliefs. They're just living them out no matter how painful it is. Does that answer your question? That answers it and then some, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think this is probably a good point for us to uh, kind of close up and uh, anything that you have, any parting words, anything to share uh, with the audience as well as obviously, hey, where they can find out more about you then as well. Well, I, I, I would just say that life is a miracle. What we call God cannot be known. You can never know God because to know God, you'd have to get rid of yourself. You can only have conscious knowledge of something with a subject-object relationship, which requires a duality. God is non-dual. God is the source of duality. So to actually know what God is or what God wants, like all most religions purport to do, look at the Ten Commandments in the Bible, it's just it's just supposed to be what God wants, which is what most religions are from, from the Abrahamic traditions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, which is, you know, that's why Osho called them religions for children, because they all need a big daddy in the sky to tell them what to do. But the Eastern religions, they don't, 
they don't do that, you have to take responsibility for your choices. So Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism. Hinduism's more pantheistic because it's got something like 240,000 gods or something, right? Which, which there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but, to, to, you know, in the times when I've entered into God consciousness, there wasn't even a me there. It was as though I was just one with all that is, but couldn't reconcile this from that or up from down. There's no sense of time. There's no sense of place. It, it's, it's not something that you can really describe because, you know, we don't have words in our language. Remember when we say talking about God, the word about means around. That's why a roundabout is a circle. To penetrate the source of consciousness or consciousness itself requires that you lose your sense of self, and that is a death threat to the ego. It's a very, very intense experience. I mean, I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, and I've had God experiences that scared me to the core. So intense, I woke up crying, screaming for my mother, because it was that intense. That's why Jung said all religious systems are designed to protect you from the direct experience of God. Because to enter God, you must annihilate the ego. Another way to put it is, the best way to describe God is unconditional love. Any sense of self represents conditions. You have a name. You have a body. There's things that you say, I like and I don't like. Those are all conditions. It's only because you are separate from me that you and I can have this experience of a relationship right now. By definition, mind, as Dan Siegel says, is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. Therefore, what you call your mind is an embodied process which is connected to your sense of I. But when you merge into God, there is no I anymore because that's a duality, that's a condition, and that cannot exist in unconditional love. Entering into God means you have to be ready not only to die, but let go of every memory you've ever had of who you are, your family, your friends, your joys, your loves. And remember the word nirvana actually means to blow out, to extinguish. It means you must blow out your sense of self. And the sense of self is the gift of the, from the mystery because without that sense of I, you and I can't love. That's why when we say I love you, we're in a subject-object relationship. The person saying, I love, is in a subjective relationship to the object of their love or devotion. I love my child. He's the object. Mana, this, in this case, or Paul Jr., would be the object of my love. That sets up a duality without which love can't be experienced. I define love as the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. So there you see it's dependent upon a duality. But to enter into God, there is no duality, which means you won't get there until you're ready to die and you don't ever have any idea you'll ever make it back. There's been times where I've been right on the edge and, and the voice of God, if you will, said to me, I said, I'm afraid. And God said something very profound. If you want to know me, you must let go of yourself and trust me. Until then, I am devoted to you and whatever you want to experience.
And that's the fact. To know God, you have to let go of yourself and trust God. And most people don't trust God enough to let go. And it's not easy to do because most people haven't had a direct enough experience of God for God to be anything other than an idea based on what they were told in Sunday school or read in books. And trust me when I tell you, there's a long ways between what people are told and what's in books and the reality of this thing we call God. And even when you enter into it, it becomes a massive mystery that you cannot really describe, which is why anytime Buddha was asked, what is God? He would, people would ask him, what is God? Or tell me about God. He would just go silent because there's nothing you can say. So my parting words are, you are that mystery expressing itself as individuality specifically so you can have the experience of loving. And the more you love yourself, the more capacity you have to love others and the world. And the greater you grow that love to loving self and then loving other and then loving the world, the next thing you know, you say, well, where did it all come from? Well, then the solar system has to be there because without the solar system, the world wouldn't be here. So then your love expands to the solar system. Then you say, wait a minute, the solar system can't be here without the galaxy. So then your love extends to the galaxy. And then you say, well, the universe is the home of the galaxy. Then your love extends to the universe. And then you naturally say what's behind it all. And by that time, you're getting close to being ready to undress. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Paul, that was amazing. Thank you. You, you froze up for a second. Say, yeah, sorry. We, we were losing it there for a second. No, I, I was just saying, though, Paul, like, thank you so much. That was just mind-blowing. I mean, I'm going to have to listen to this and re-listen to this to take it all in. Listen to it as a meditation, not as a discussion. Just like you were listening to a guided meditation. Don't listen to it as instruction or you'll stay trapped in your intellectual ego mind. But if you go sit in a quiet place and do some breathing and relaxation exercises first and then just lay on the ground and listen from that place, You'll go on a journey with me. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. And that's my encouragement for everybody. Well, Paul, I always, you. Oh, go ahead, please. I always tell my students, never believe a word I say. Try it for yourself. Until, until you try it for yourself, it's just someone else's ideas or someone else's concepts or someone else's words. But these things, you know, what I'm talking about is beyond ideas. They're all about experiences, and each of us can't really be, can't trust someone else until we have them ourselves. All people that have these skills and abilities and experiences can do is, is leave a breadcrumb trail for others to follow, but you still have to be willing to put one foot in front of the other and follow the breadcrumbs. Otherwise, you're just reading Harry Potter and either believing it or not believing it. Paul. Thank you so much for this for for this conversation as well as future meditation. 
Uh, I really do appreciate it. And I'm sure I think a lot of people will really appreciate what you've had to share today. So thank you. You know, there's a, a great series on Gaia TV I would highly recommend for everybody. It's called Mystery Teachings by Teresa Bullard, B-U-L-L-A-R-D. She's a physicist, an alchemist, a Kabbalist, and much more. It's a mind-blowingly good series. I couldn't have made a better series myself. It'll blow your mind. I look forward to checking it out. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. Thank you, Paul. Take care.